Good evening, friends. We are living in a very strange world and in very serious times. Today, I want to share with you a text from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 13. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fire trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Friends, there's an irrefutable principle of Christian living, and I believe of moral living, that when you step out and stand up for God, you have to be prepared for the onslaught of the enemy. In other words, prepare for trouble. Um, for some of us, it's a head-on confrontation. And I guess for others, the fiery darts are a little more subtle. But they're just as deadly. So what do I mean by truly stepping out and, um, and standing up for God? Well, I made a statement once and I was advised that the statement was out of line. Um, out of line with what? I wanted to know. But it really was a rhetorical question for I knew and um, the individual knew that I wasn't rude or disrespectful. I was only speaking the truth. The problem was I wasn't being politically correct or I wasn't saying the things that were warm and fuzzy. I wasn't phrasing things in such a way as not to annoy or to offend. I was stepping out of line. Now, don't get me wrong. We should never willfully seek to hurt someone with what we say or with our actions. And um, our aim must never be to offend anyone. We are admonished in Proverbs 16 and verse 24, in, in Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23, in Ephesians 4, and I think about verse 28 or 29, and several other Bible references where we're admonished to speak only things which are gracious and edifying. However, we must also recognize that the gospel is inherently offensive in nature. If you think about it, let's, let's think about Jesus. Imagine back in his days on earth, upsetting the very process by which the Jews believed they could be saved. Jesus told the Jews that by following the letter of the law, they could not be justified. He said, look, you have it wrong. It's through the law that you have knowledge of sin. And you can find that in Romans 3 verse 20. Yeah, Jesus said, look, the law makes you aware of sin. Nothing more, nothing less. Upholding the law by itself does not save you, he said. He says you want to truly be saved? You really want justification? Then it can only come by grace through faith in Christ. Ouch. Jesus at one point went into the temple and, and overturned the tables of the money changers. And if that wasn't enough, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but instead you've made it into a den of thieves. You can look that up in Matthew 21 and verse 13. Now that wasn't a very politically correct thing to do or to say. You see, friends, there's a funny thing when you step out of line or you stand up for your faith in God. You become an obvious target almost immediately. 
you know, just like Shadrach and, and Meshach and Abednego, when, when everyone bowed to the Babylonian image that King Nebuchadnezzar had created, I'm sure they stuck out like a sore thumb. So much so that they were immediately brought before the king. Sure, the king had been kind to them. After all, they had already been promoted to positions of influence within the Babylonian society. And let me think about it. These, these boys, they were hostages from Jerusalem. But yet they told Nebuchadnezzar, we'll not bow to your golden image. That wasn't a politically correct thing to say either. And as much as they didn't want to die, they could not disappoint the God who had been their faithful, true, and personal friend. You see, friends, their decision was not based on their present situation. Theirs was an eternal decision. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 10 and verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses or um, acknowledges me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. You see, a lot of persons want to have a love-on-the-side relationship with Jesus. They'll say, Jesus, we are friends behind closed doors. But please, when you see me with my friends on the street, don't make eye contact with me. I don't know you and you don't know me. It's similar to what Peter did in Matthew 26 and verse uh, 35 when behind closed doors he declared, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I'll never disown you. And then later, when he was identified as being one of Jesus' disciples, what did he do? He flatly denied it and even began cursing and saying, I don't know the man. I don't know this man. <sighs> Today I want to tell you about another guy that wasn't politically correct. But first, let me take you back to over 2,000 years ago. Let me see if I can paint the scene for you. I think it was the most eagerly anticipated party in town. The large banquet hall. It was dimly lit. Almost dark, you know. And though it was to capacity with guests, no one moved a muscle. No one dared even to blink. You know why? Because their eyes remained riveted to a single figure in the center of the room. I think the lamplight cast kind of an elongated silhouette across the floor and kind of contorted the evenly proportioned slender figure of a dancer barely reaching her puberty. I believed her eyes glimmered like a thousand stars behind the veil and she seemingly hypnotized everyone and anyone who was weak enough to lock her stare. I can just see her hips swaying purposefully to the sound of the pulsating rhythm. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two. The music grows louder and louder, and she spins faster and faster, louder, faster, louder, faster. And across the town, someone else was hearing the music, and he couldn't sleep. 
Each time he laid his head on the cold prison floor, the clanging cymbals and the loud music jolted him back to reality. And he kept thinking, what on earth is this celebration about? He tried to get the attention of one of the prison guards. Hey there, oi! But they appeared oblivious to his gestures. Oh, my aching head. Can't a man get some sleep around here? One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. She was weaving her spell. But boy, she was gracious. Oh, so gracious. Herod was mesmerized. He leaned forward in a drunken stupor, encouraging her on as he whispered, Dance for me, Salome. Dance. Dance. Suddenly the music reached a crescendo and she falls lifeless to the ground. And the crowd applauses. And after a brief moment, the young maiden awakes from her trance and she slithers over to Herod. Oh, Salome. Oh, Salome. Another brilliant performance. My child, name your price. I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she hesitates just briefly. Her dark eyes Deep as the Arabian pools, suddenly those eyes got even darker and her lips tightened into a cruel sneer. She leans over and she whispers in Herod's ear, Give me the head of John the Baptist. Across the town, the prisoner is relieved, I believe, because the music is finally over and now he could rest. Finally, the throbbing in his head would stop. And he would have one more night to think about everything that had brought him to this point, to this place and to this prison. You see, John the Baptist had burst on the scene as a forerunner to Jesus Christ. In John 1, we read where he says that um, he came just to tell others about Jesus. He said, I am not that one. I am not the light. I'm just here to bear, to bear witness of that light. But you see, friends, when John spoke, he spoke with such power, with such conviction, not about himself, but about the one who was to come after him. People listened to him. They were mesmerized by him. Though I, I believe from, from all accounts, he looked like a homeless man. John wandered in and out of the wilderness wearing strange clothes and, and surviving on a diet of locusts and wild honey. Why then were the multitudes drawn to him? Because he spoke truth. He spoke truth with clarity and with conviction. Yeah. You see, John would cut through the fluff of political correctness and he spoke the undiluted truth. And so one day, Herod Antipas, the tetriarch of Galilee, powerful man, ruler appointed by Rome, happened to be out and about and, and stopped to listen to John the Baptist. 
talk about wrong place and wrong timing. And so in the middle of his discourse, John looks up, he sees Herod, and above the crowd he shouts, You, yes, yes, you, Herod. You should not be married to the woman that you are with now. Whoa. <laughs> I can just imagine everyone's jaw dropped. What? Doesn't John know who he's addressing? Doesn't he know people lose their lives for less than that? Ah. John knew that all right, but under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he had to call truth by its right name. But what was truth? All right, sit down. I'm going to tell you the soap opera that was happening in Herod's life. You see, Fred, Herod Antipas had been married to Phasaelis. I hope I call her name right. I think that's what they referred to as Phasaelis. And Phasaelis was the daughter of King Aretas IV of Nebetea. And on one occasion, Herod Antipas meets Herodias and immediately becomes infatuated with her. The problem was that Herodias at the time had been married to her half-uncle, Herod II, and they had a daughter together, Salome. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, Herod II and Herod Antipas were also half-brothers, so in short, he fell in love with his half-brother's wife. So what does Herod Antipas do? He divorces or, or puts away Phasaelis. Herodias, on the other hand, divorced her husband, Herod II. And then both of them got married. Of course, this marriage, I'm, I'm sure, was frowned upon by the people as, as the union violated Jewish law. So now, Herod Antipas has two living wives. <laughs> and Herodias has two living husbands. Two marital relationships had been destroyed. And to make matters worse, there was a child involved. But Herod and Herodias expected everyone to be okay with it because they were rich and powerful. And so when John the Baptist preached, he cut to the core and cut to the chase and simply verbalized what everyone else was thinking. You, yes, you, Herod, you should not be married to the woman that you are with now. Of course, Herodias heard about it and she wasn't amused by all this. You know the saying, I think it's what, hell hath no fury as a woman scorned or, or something like that. And even though Herod knew he was wrong and knew John was speaking the truth, he was weak. He was a wimp for his wife. And so I believe she kept after Herod day in and day out. And you know what it is like when a woman starts nagging you like slow and steady rain. <laughs> the wise man in Proverbs 21 and verse 9 says, it's better to dwell in the corner of a house top than in a house shared by a contentious woman. Yes, man. And I don't know if this was for emphasis or, <laughs> or the woman sent him up to the roof again. But by the time I get to Proverbs 25 and verse 24, 
the writer says the very same thing as in Proverbs 21 and verse 9. It's better to dwell in the corner of a house top than in a house shared by a contentious woman. So you can imagine the nagging Herod had day after day. So finally, Herod gives in to Herodias and has John the Baptist arrested. Oh dear. I can imagine he, he probably said to the guards, Psst, be nice to him. Don't go beating him or anything. He's a man of God and he speaks the truth. But you know, the wife, man, the wife has a problem with what he's been preaching. You know, you know, friends, I always find it's typical when a man has to do something that he's not too happy with, but he wants to appease his wife, you know. He doesn't refer to her as my wife. He says, the wife. <laughs> we know that. So now, John is in prison, but that's not enough for Herodias. She's out for blood. And so she waits her time and weaves a most horrific plan that involves her daughter, Salome. And that night, Salome puts on the dance of death, not her death, but that of John the Baptist. And so, friends, the music John heard was his death knell. His head would not hurt for much longer, for it would be presented on a platter to Herodias. The story records in Matthew 14, 9 to 11. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the sake of the oath he had made and them which sat with him at the meal, he commanded it to be given to her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison and his head was brought in a charger and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother all of this happening in the presence of potentially hundreds of noblemen who all knew john was speaking the truth but i guess they were fearful that any opposition would threaten their very existence as well i want you to stop for a minute and think when was the last time you stood up for jesus when was the last time you took a stand for what was right? I'm here to tell you someone wants your head. It might not be evident to you, but already a plan is being woven in the spiritual realm and one day it will be executed. I know what it is to have one event after another just stacking up against you. But I believe in the life-breathing word of God that is able to make even the vilest sinner free. I believe what Hebrews 4 and verse 12 and 13 says, that the word of God is swift and powerful and sharper than any twitched sword, penetrating even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thought and intent of the heart. And there's no creature, no creature, hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we must, we must give an account. I believe Second Timothy 3 and verse 16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Will you stand up for truth, be it in the workplace, at school, at your social club, even in your church, knowing that someone wants your head? 
Will you focus on vetting your sermon to make it politically correct because you know someone wants your head? Will you choose to keep silent in the face of injustice because someone wants your head? Ellen White puts it this way in the book Education, page 57. The greatest want of the world is the want of men. Men who will not be bought or sold. Men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men whose conscience are true to duty as the needle is to the pole. Men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Isaiah 58 verse 1 reminds us to cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voices like a trumpet. Declare to the people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Friends, the world is going crazy. Bad is now seen as good and good is being frowned on as bad. Friends, I pray today that we will redeem the times and recognize that some of us may be placed in a situation where we have to defend what we believe. How will we stand? Or will we stand? Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice. Inasmuch as they are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Someone wants your head. I pray though that God will give us the courage, having done all, to stand. God bless you.